Welcome to the Travel Like a Boss podcast, where we interview location-independent entrepreneurs that travel the world like a boss by being their own boss. Here's your host, Johnny FD. Hey, bosses, this is Johnny, and welcome to episode 258 of the Travel Like a Boss podcast. I'm here with Charles No. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Johnny. Good to see you again. It's been a while. Dude, it's been like four years. I think it was Affiliate yeah. World Bangkok like years ago. Yeah, I think we've known of each other online for quite a while, but last time we saw each other was 2016. And, you know, I think now it's 2020. I don't think either of us have been traveling that much. <laughs> you know, what's funny is I've actually been traveling like crazy, but just within Sri Lanka. Yeah, I, well, for me, I've, I've kind of stayed put in Atlanta this whole time. So it's definitely making me miserable. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, that's actually something that I wanted to, to ask you about is the change from, you know, living abroad and traveling around a lot versus your decision to move to you know New York and then Florida and then back to Atlanta. But first, let's kind of catch up and start in the beginning. How did you first hear about me online? How did I first hear about you? I, I think, man, it, it's either, it's, there's probably two ways I've heard about you. I think one, we have a lot of mutual friends. So we have a lot of mutual friends. Um, I mean, we're both, you know, digital nomad, internet marketing community. And I think I went to your blog a long time ago and I was attracted to the income reports. Mm, okay. So, so I'm actually kind of weird where I look at the opposite. Everyone wants to look at how much money you make your income sources. I kind of ignore that. To be honest, I look at how much money you spend because oh. I'm very financially independent minded. So I love looking at expense reports. And whenever I see someone that's like extremely frugal, it challenges me to think, okay, where can I cut expenses in my life? Mm, that, make, that makes sense. I really like looking at people's income reports as well. And unlike uh, most people, I don't just scroll down to the big number. I like to kind of dissect and see where the opportunities are, where they're making money, where they're not really focusing the time. And I'm thinking, you know what? Maybe that's the one thing they can scale up. And maybe that's kind of the untapped part that everyone else oh, did. I, I think that's how my mind works as well. Like, have you ever, I remember back in college, if someone had a relationship advice, I could break down and dissect their relationships so easily, but my own love life, I was like, what the heck do I do? <laughs> so kind of same way, whenever I see someone else's business, I can literally look at it and dissect it, break it apart. You should do this. You should scale this. You should do that. But sometimes when we're in our own businesses, it's hard to see because we see so many details. Yeah, exactly. So I'm trying to remember exactly how I first heard about you, but I'm not sure if it was you or not, maybe it was someone else, but there was a story of someone who bought a, um, I think it was a Canon digital camera when it was like super on sale. And then they re realized, hey, I can sell this for full price on eBay. And oh, that's me. That was, that was you, right? That's me, yeah. What's crazy is I found that exact same deal, the exact same year. It, it was probably something like, you know, price match, you know, office max to office depot to, to you yep. know, I don't know, good guys or something. And then a mail and rebate or something. And we ended up getting, yep. you know, like a, an insane deal on it. And I remember thinking I was so smart for getting that deal and saving that money. And I was a hundred percent happy until 15 years later when I read your post <laughs> about it. And I realized, crap, I was thinking so small. I was thinking of just how to save myself some money and get something for, you know, something cheap versus I should have had the mentality of, well, if I can get this at such a good deal, why not buy five of them or 10 of them 
and make money from it. Maybe keep one for myself and make yeah. money from it. Should I tell that story real quick? Yeah, please. Yeah. So what happened is I, uh, I went to Georgia Tech. And while at Georgia Tech, I was broke. You know, I was only making uh, maybe $50 once a week. I worked at the gas station, quick trip. So I did that once a week. And I was always in this mentality of how can I make more money? How can I hustle? Now, this was 2006, way back, like 14 years ago. So stuff like drop shipping and e-commerce wasn't really around back then. So what happened was my birthday was coming up. I forgot how old I was back then, but my birthday was coming up. And back then I was addicted to these two websites, fatwallet.com and slickdeals.com. Mm -hmm. So that's where you would find these deals. So I was looking for a deal for a camera because back then, you know, there weren't really smartphones around and stuff. So I needed a nice picture for my Facebook profile. So I saw this crazy deal where, yeah, there's this 300 something dollar Canon camera. I forgot which model it was. And it was at Staples. So what happened mm. was there was this deal and then you price matched it to someone else. And then Staples also had a $50 off $150 coupon. So what happened was I bought it. I played with a camera. I was really excited. And then something clicked my head. I was like, wait a minute, this camera costs, you know, normally 300 bucks. I bought it for maybe $150. How much is it worth on eBay? So I just went on eBay and I just looked at completed sales, what actually sold. And it sold for 300 bucks. So then I thought to myself, wait a minute, why am I working eight hours to make $55? Like what would happen if I actually just went around Atlanta and bought all of them and resold all of them? So that's exactly what I did. I maxed out my credit card with $100. I spent several hours driving all around Atlanta. I bought them all up. I went on eBay and I listed them. And I literally made, I don't know, I would probably say like $2,000 in wow. one weekend compared to $50. And that was, the, that was the tipping point for me to think, okay, I need to learn how to make money online. Like this mm. showed me uh, I can do this. But I knew it wasn't a career because this, this retail arbitrage, you know, it's not something you can feed your kids off of. Well, you know what? It's maybe, just too unreliable. Yeah. I mean, definitely with that, that deal, because it was kind of a, a one-time thing, but that mindset of looking for ways to, you know, to make money instead of just saving money, that's something I wish I would have learned when I was in college and not when I started online marketing in 2013. So we, yeah. were, we, we literally found the same deal from SlickDeals.net or whatever it was, and we just went different paths. And, you know, yep. I feel that's what, like, when I heard that story, I just was kicking myself in the butt thinking, man, I could have accomplished so much more and made so much more money if I just had a different mindset then. I mean, better late than never, but that yep. was the big pivotal moment of when I started kind of following you and, and reading your stuff. Yeah, that, that story just is interesting because these days, you know, everyone's always asking me in 2020, hey, Charles, if you had to make money today, where would you start? And they go into this little circle. Should I do Amazon FBA? Should I do drop shipping? Should I do e-commerce? Should I do affiliate marketing? And I read this quote the other day that was um, kind of pertinent. It said, the path doesn't appear until you start walking. The path doesn't appear until you start walking. So with me, you know, my entrepreneurship journey was literally, I, I did that and then I got addicted to retail arbitrage. And then eventually I started uh, drop shipping items from China back in, I started doing this drop shipping in 2007. It, you know, it was no, there was no Alibaba, there was no AliExpress. So I literally had to like risk $500 sending a wire. So yeah, I sold some, some items from China on eBay and then I got banned there. 
and I got I switched over to Amazon, and then I got banned there. My account's still banned to this day. But eventually, one opportunity leads to another opportunity, leads to another opportunity, which eventually led me to discover affiliate marketing. So it's not like when I was 20 years old, I was like, hey, I'm going to do affiliate marketing. No, I did one thing, and then I did it to the best of my ability. And then when you're on one path, another path opens up that you couldn't see because you need that reference experience. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. I, I think I mean, that, that hits on two points. One is a lot of people just never get started, so they never even see the other paths. And the other kind of extreme of it is people go on a path and before they even get anywhere, even before they get to that T intersection of deciding, you know, do I want to go left or right? They just turn back and they just give up or, or start over and think, you know what, I'm going to do affiliate marketing for one week and then I'll try job streaming for one week and then Amazon for one week and just nothing ends up working. Yeah. That's, you know, the biggest, uh, Mark Cuban has this great quote you can drown an opportunity. And it feels like everyone's just constantly having bright, shiny object syndrome. And it's something you just have to, I find the best way to battle that is setting boundaries. So I remember, uh, you know, it took me 14 campaigns. I lost over $4,000 before I found my first profitable affiliate marketing campaign. And when I found campaign number 15, I told myself, I have to spend $2,000 on this campaign no matter what. I cannot switch my path. I cannot quit. I cannot do something else until I spend $2,000. So I spent $1,000 and all those old feelings came back up where, hey, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do that. My affiliate manager says, this is hot. But I said, no, I made a contract with myself. I set constraints. I set boundaries. And the next thousand eventually led to more split tests and experiments, which got me my first profitable campaign. So I think setting boundaries is important. And the second one is, Man, when you find something you're really excited about, you have to like, literally, I have a rule. When I have an idea that I get excited about, after, I'm, after I find out, I have to spend an hour on momentum. Like I have to do something. It doesn't mean going on forums. doesn't mean going on Facebook groups. It means like I have to like take some kind of concrete action and then, yeah, let the momentum ride. And I think number three is, man, some guys are just too addicted to information. Like I love podcasts. I love books. I love Facebook groups. I love reading, but I, I find myself, I have this eight, one formula where I spend eight hours working and I only spend one hour uh, reading or learning while other people, I feel they have the exact opposite where they spend eight hours learning and one hour implementation. Mm. The problem is when you're spending so much time learning, of course, you're going to have bright, shiny object syndrome because you're on this path of Amazon FBA, but then someone else says list buildings. Uh, the key. Someone else says Shopify is the key. Everyone's right. Like every path makes money. Every path works, but nothing's going to work unless you work. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think actually a big problem when we both started and you earlier than me is I couldn't even find one thing that worked. There just wasn't information out there on how to do any of this stuff. But as of at least a few years ago, you're, you're right. It's the opportunities out there would drown us because they, they literally all work. I've literally met, you know, dozens of people in each category of even like random stuff that I really thought would not work online. And as long as people dedicate to it and there's buyers out there, I've met people who've made six figures selling the most random crap online in the most random ways using the most random techniques, but because they focus on it, they're successful. And yet I've met thousands of people who just never get started or change paths, you know, just jump back and forth from, from, you know, the, the next hot thing until everything kind of burns out. It's, you know, I, I think so much of entrepreneurship 
what people don't understand is so much of it is mindset and psychological. You know, I've, I've met so many guys uh, trying to learn affiliate marketing who should have made it. Brilliant guys, Ivy League degree, lot, high salary. So they had a lot of disposable income. They had the connections, but they never made it because they never had the right mindset or psychology. And I think a big part of it is the way school systems are designed. They're designed for us to just memorize facts. I, I remember, you know, going to school, university, we're just constantly memorizing all these different facts and studying for quizzes, studying for SATs. But in the real world, entrepreneurship is more like discovered learning. There is no step-by-step -step system you can follow exactly to get the result. Instead, it's more like you're thinking like a scientist where you're constantly iterating, constantly doing these different experiments. So I think there's a, just a big difference between how we're taught to learn and the actions required, the mindset required to be an entrepreneur is completely different. And you, you have to learn it on your own. That's the tough part, making that adaptation. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I, and I used to think that everybody had it in them to be an entrepreneur, but the more time passes, I realize I think not everybody, I don't want to say not everyone has, it, has what it takes. I don't think most people would be happy being an entrepreneur. I think they would rather be a good employee I, what, I, I what are your thoughts? I, I think one psychologically, you know, I'm pretty sure you know what loss aversion is, that it hurts a lot more to lose money than it takes to gain money. So I, I think it's built in like this fear of losing your money, this fear of self-reliance is always there. So, you know, and I think it's very ironic. I think it's ironic that when I quit my job and became an entrepreneur, everyone's like, oh, it's so risky. It's totally risky. And in my head, I thought to myself, look, if I have a career, then I'm relying on my employer. I'm pretty much relying on my employer. If I'm going to rely on someone, I'd rather rely on myself. I'd rather gamble myself. And in 2020, you know, we're in the permissionless economy. So you don't, you know, you're, you're Asian American. I'm Asian American. And man, when we were growing up, dude, I wouldn't even dream of being a movie star. Absolutely not. Because I don't, I don't do Kung Fu. I don't do martial arts. That was literally the only roles available for us. But what's great about YouTube is we have this generation of Asian American faces and creators where they didn't need permission. And you got uh, all these people like JK Films and Wang Fu that just became successful. They need anyone's permission. So in my opinion these days, it's 2020. Holy crap, you don't need permission to be successful in anything. Would you rather bet on your employer, especially in this uh, economic situation? Or would you rather bet on yourself and bet on being able to make an income from 7 billion people? Yeah, and I definitely agree. And one thing I love about the internet is the internet doesn't really care who you are, what race you are, you know, how old you are. And the internet doesn't even need to know. I mean, I was running my businesses from Thailand in the middle of the night in the US time, but nobody knew. I could have been a 12-year-old girl from the Philippines as long as I had you know, the workarounds and the access to, you know, to figure these things out and sell things online, it wouldn't matter if I was her or if I was, you know, some 45 year old, you know, you know, white guy in New York. It, it, it there's challenges obviously for, you know, things like payment processors and things like that. So it is much easier yep. being American and much easier being 18, but in general, the internet doesn't care who you are. And it's such a great time to be alive, especially with things like affiliate marketing, uh, the type of affiliate marketing that, that you specialize in, 
which, which I call CPA affiliate marketing, like cost per action affiliate yep. marketing versus the, the type of affiliate marketing I do, which is more like brand driven. And just kind of give everyone a, a very quick overview. You know, if you go to my blog and you click, you know, recommended resources, you buy this microphone that, that I'm using, this Audio-Technica or the, the Blue Yeti that Charles is using, I'll get a commission from Amazon or whoever it was. And that's affiliate marketing. But the type of affiliate marketing Charles does is much more scalable. C- can you kind of very quickly define what it is? Sure. So you're absolutely correct. Affiliate marketing has so many definitions. Same with e-commerce. Like there's so many different types of e-commerce out there. So affiliate marketing itself is, is the term we use, but it's difficult to accomplish everything. So I, I like CPA marketing. Performance marketing is also another good one. So here's the difference between uh, what Johnny said and you know, what I do. CPA marketing means I find, I find a, okay, let's just say Dell. Dell sells computer. And let's just say they, sell, they have an affiliate program where they give you, um, to keep it very simple, they, they have a CPA of a hundred bucks. So every time I refer someone that buys a computer that costs over a thousand dollars, I will get paid a hundred bucks. So Dell has, an, has a marketing program. You know, they spend a lot of money on Facebook. They spend a lot of money on uh, YouTube everywhere. However, they want to make more sales. So what they can do is they can hire these mercenaries. I, I like to think of myself as a mercenary, <laughs> the affiliate marketer, where they say, hey, Charles, here's your link. For everyone that clicks your link, we're going to pay you um, $100. So it's, it's similar to, to what Johnny said so far. The difference is how we get distribution. So Johnny has his blog, or he could build a blog and use SEO traffic. And for the most part, they, uh, there's a part influencer traffic as well uh, because they trust who he is. They trust the brand. Mine is kind of like the opposite where I just find out where the customers are. So for example, I can create banner ads on Facebook and the goal for me is I spend my own money. That's the big difference. I invest my own money and if I create a campaign, I create the website called the landing page. And if I get enough people to sell, I get high enough conversion rate. So let's just say the CPA is a hundred bucks, but my cost per acquisition is 80 bucks. Then for every sale I get, that's $20. The difference is once you have something dialed in, the scale is virtually unlimited because the input, the input is just my money. And, you know, my money has a pretty high scale because I can get paid weekly or I can put it on a credit card. Johnny with his blog, unfortunately, has a limit when it comes to the input because that's traffic. Because if most of his traffic comes from either word of mouth or SEO, it takes time to build. And, you know, I do both kinds. Like I, I have my CPA, but then I also have my charlesno.com, which generates five figures a month through, you know, I write about affiliate marketing and I also recommend different affiliate marketing tools, website hosts, all that stuff. So I'm very familiar with both. Yeah. And it's funny because when I went to Affiliate World, I got invited there as uh, a panel speaker for, for Shopify and I was an, because I was an affiliate for them. So yep. I kind of assumed, like, you know, I would understand the jargon and, you know, know what people were talking about. That very first day I was there, I realized I, had, I, had, I knew nothing about what other affiliates do. Like, they would use terms that I've never heard of. <laughs> the, yep. the thing, you know, and like, I was walking around the booths and thinking, There's, this is a huge industry. I mean, you know, they, I, I, like, it's in the, like, hundreds of millions of dollars a year, maybe even more that people are spending, you know, these companies are coming out trying to find affiliates 
and they're spending so much. I think that was the biggest difference between like the Nomad Summit Conference for digital nomads versus affiliate world for affiliates is the sponsors that come to our event, they're kind of very low budget, you know, <laughs> like everybody's oh, kind yeah. of just, you know, and it's, it's fun. It's, you know, low cost of living, it's traveling, you know, it's a, it's a great event. But when I'm in affiliate world, people, companies were dropping cash. Like the parties there were insane, open bar, everything. And I was thinking, man, like pe- some people are making a lot of freaking money doing this. It's, this is a whole new world. Dude, some of those top tier sponsors, the diamond sponsors, I think they were, it was like a hundred thousand dollars to sponsor the booths are like $8,000. And I've thrown parties there before with, uh, you know, I wasn't paying it for out of my pocket, but my budgets I required were always around $30,000 because wow. you gotta, you gotta do open bar and you, you know, you have to have like pay extra for like beautiful girls to be there. You gotta have the right decor. Like they go <laughs> all out. It's, and you know, what's interesting. You said something along the lines of there's a lot of money there, but I had no idea. I think that's because the affiliate marketing industry is kind of like the uh, redheaded stepchild <laughs> of marketing online because the truth is, um, the problem with affiliate marketing, CPA marketing, is we're putting our own money on the line. And our goal is we're not, look, we're not building an email list. We're not building a long-term brand. We don't have any uh, interaction with the customer. We don't have a lot of levers like other companies do. So we have to do whatever we can to make that profit. And in the past, a lot of affiliates would promote offers that weren't the most legit, like uh, diet pills that maybe didn't work. Or perhaps we would put certain uh, scripts on our landing page. So when people land on it and they hit the back button, it would just refresh the page. So that's kind of like why it's probably not as well known as other industries, because it's kind of like, you know, Facebook's not going to promote it, for example, because we break a lot of the traffic terms in terms of services. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Viagra ads or the Cialis ads, things like that, you know, that, that would pop up in sites. Chances are that was an affiliate, you know, writing that. But yes. at the same time, I, I have noticed that it has gone a lot, you know, went away from that super black hat, you know, shady world to being a lot more white hat and a lot more Facebook friendly or advertiser friendly now. Absolutely. So I'm not going to say it's because overnight affiliates developed a conscience. There's um, <laughs> a lot of market, <laughs> a lot of market forces that have happened in the past few years. So here's several of them. One of them is the traffic sources. Their technology has gotten smarter. So a lot of the tactics affiliate used in the past, like such as cloaking, for example, it's a lot, lot harder to cloak, for example. So that's so, one. So cloaking, for example, would be Facebook thinks you're running an ad to something very PG 13, like, you know, I don't know, a sweater, but really yep. the ad is selling like some crazy, you know, illegal thing, like, you know, like, like big dick pills or something. Well, well, here's a, here's a actual example from my past. <laughs> um, uh, so back then Facebook allowed dating affiliates and what my team used to run was we would run dating stuff. Unfortunately, the old couple holding hands on the beach uh, is not exactly going to get the highest conversion. So instead, uh, we would do different types of cloaking where it looks like it would go to a page where an old couple is holding hands on the beach. But in reality, uh, it's something a lot more risque. Uh, you know, maybe it features, I'm not going to say it's like porn, but it would just feature like a younger woman scantily clad that wouldn't pass the review. So you go to that instead. And, you know, there's different degrees of 
cloaking and shadiness. But my point is we did that a lot back in the day. Now it still happens, but it's not as common. So that's the first force. The first force is it's become harder. The second force, and I think this is a really underestimated force, is man, traffic sources like Facebook and Google and YouTube have made it so easy for everyone to advertise. If you have Johnny, let's say you don't know anything about uh, performance marketing. If you have an email list of like, let's say 30,000 people, just upload it to Facebook, tell them to run the campaign and they'll go and find people through their lookalike audience. It's super easy uh, these days. So because there's less friction, there's more competition. So now there's more people coming in, which means the, uh, the costs, you know, the CPMs have naturally gone up. And I think the third thing interesting is when I first started in 2007, dude, it was either affiliate marketing or SEO. Like in my head, there was no other way to make money on the internet besides affiliate marketing SEO. Now there are so many different options uh, for affiliate marketing. So affiliates, you know, what's interesting is I think affiliate marketers, there's definitely a lot less affiliate marketers in my opinion than in the past few years because a lot of them have transitioned over to building their own products. A lot of them have gone over to Shopify e-commerce, building their own brands because as an affiliate, you're getting a small piece of the pie. You're getting a small margin. Versus if you own the product, you own the store, bro, we can cross-sell, we can upsell, we can email them promotions, we can SMS message them. Uh, we can do all these, we have all these levers of profitability that we couldn't have in the past as an affiliate. So that's kind of like what I'm seeing now as the trend on why everything's going a little bit more white hat. It's not a ethical thing, but I think there's just a lot more potential for profits. And if people are starting to think, hey, instead of being an affiliate, why don't I become a owner and make more money? Why don't I build value? Why don't I go for an exit one day instead of just getting this one-time sale? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And the funny thing about that one, that, you know, one-time sale is I've met so many affiliates in my time in, you know, especially in, in Thailand where they would, you know, be broke for, you know, however many months trying to find something that clicked. And then once they did, it was like money was just flowing in. They would be making, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars a month in profit. And the only thing stopping them from making more was their they kept hitting their credit card limits. So I would I would have friends that would literally have one hundred Amex cards just to like, you know, just to turn through and just not hit limits where every time one like one Facebook deactivated one, they would just use another card and they would make so much money, but then they would always assume that that money would last forever. Oh my God. I've had friends who, you know, would rent like the penthouse suite at a hotel, pay nightly, and then throw away the TV and buy a bigger TV to put in their hotel room. And like, and like they were just acting like money, like they would just, this money would just come in forever. And then obviously then it dries up and then they're broke again for, you know, however many months or even years. Yeah, I, I think I, I call it the feast or famine mentality. And I think affiliates are very similar to a poker professional where, you know, deep down a lot of affiliates were, you know, I, I think a big part of it is just a demographic. You know, I would say 95% of affiliates are men in, in their 20s, you know, and for them, they just don't have, they're young, you know, they're probably single. So they have other uh, motives for flexing and they probably just don't have as much experience with uh, personal finance. So yeah, I would see this all the time where 
you know, they're making money and in their head, they're thinking, oh my God, if I'm making this much, once I get more experience or I build my team or I get this office, I can easily scale this up to a hundred thousand. But people just don't realize so much of, so much of the success can be down to like uh, timing. You know, you, you're able to succeed because this offer was hot at this time, but then several months later, that offer goes down because they have merchant processing issues. You try some other offers and it just doesn't hit as hard. Or maybe you were successful with that campaign because you hit the right angle at the right time. So that's why I've always you know, preached to other affiliates to when you're doing well, scale as hard as possible. Don't try to increase your lifestyle too much um, and always save for a rainy day. Yeah. you know, And I think that's why I've I've always liked you and your mentality. I mean, maybe it's growing up as kind of the frugal Asian American, but yep. it seemed like you always had a good head on your shoulders while literally every other affiliate I've ever met has been kind of like that, that rock star mentality of like, fuck it. Let's just, you know, you know, let, let's spend $10,000 on, on cocaine and, you know, rental Lamborghinis. I mean, I, I had my degenerate phase. Like I, I had, I went through a supercar phase. I had the GTR. I had an R8. I uh, definitely went through a different degenerate phase. And here's what's interesting. I think so much of it, once again, is psychology. I feel like there are some guys I know, you know, I've seen some guys that are far more successful than me, but it's just like, it's this itch where no supercar or no woman who's hot enough can ever satisfy that itch. And I feel like a lot of it boils down to like insecurity or inner game. So I feel like every affiliate or every internet entrepreneur, you go through this phase where you make money. Yeah, you spend a little bit, you upgrade your lifestyle, but there comes a point where you're like, okay, this is enough. Let me go back to the grind where there's some other people that just, they don't love the business. They don't love working. They just love the results of it. They love the money. So I think for me, what separated me was number one, my, my upbringing. You know, when you're the son of first generation immigrants, you know, there's this pressure growing up from the day you're born to instill a work ethic. Um, so that's, that's very important. And I think, you know, it's also, it's also important that, you know, for me, I, I've been in this space for such a long time. And I felt like as I got older, I just, I just matured, you know, and it's just some people just don't ever get their inner game right. And they just keep thinking more money can, can fix this. But for me, I just love business, man. I love business. I love marketing. It's like, it's what I do for fun, dude. Yeah. And I, and I can tell, like, I can really tell. And it's been so many years and you're still so passionate about it. I remember actually before we ever spoke, we ever met, I wrote an article where I basically shared something you wrote on your Facebook page. It was oh, called- my conversation with the Uber driver. Was that what it was? Yeah. And you remember that? Yeah. 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 It was, um, cause dude, you rank, you rank really high for my name, <laughs> that article. Like, cause I, you know, I've always keeping track of my SEO and my reputation, but I think the article, I made a Facebook post, which was like, I, I was in a car. Um, okay. I got to pull up. Cause I don't actually remember the content. Charles, no Johnny FD. So I was in an Uber ride and the Uber driver was, uh, striking up a conversation with me and he was asking me, what do I do? And then you know, I, I told him what I did and stuff and he could tell, you know, I, I did pretty well. And he asked me like, Hey man, what are some advice you can give me some life advice to be successful? And you know, it was a really short ride. So I wrote a Facebook post about it. And my three tips were, let me see, number one, people associating with smart people. And you know, there's that Chinese proverb, you are the sum of the five people you're closest with. So you got to like find mentors or find a strong peer group. 
The second one is uh, industry. So I think, you know, I was able to be successful because I was in the right industry at the right time. Like I got into affiliate marketing, like what, 2008? I was ruining this super early when I was like 21 years old. So being in the right industry helps because if I'm in like the wrong industry, let's just say I was in newspaper industry, like, come on, <laughs> you know, how much successful can I make there? And third, I talked about daily action, which is like what um, you do on a daily basis. So I really believe in the concept of Kaizen, continuous improvement. So I'm all about habit building. Like for the past, what, 15 years, I meditate every single morning. I read every single day. I exercise three times a week. Like to me, they're not habits. It's so ingrained in my life that to me, it's just, it's just life. So you have to figure out what the right habits are and the right, what the wrong habits are. Like for me, I, I realized a long time ago that Facebook was really bad for my mental health. Dude, I deleted Facebook for four years. You know how some people are like, hey, I'm just going to get off Facebook and they're back two weeks later. I got rid of it for four years and I only just got back into it like a few months ago. So, you know, that's the advice um, I told him. But yeah, you wrote about it. And then I think that's actually how I know you, dude, because I was Googling my name and I was like, what the heck is this? Who's this guy? And how, why is he <laughs> ranking on the first page for my name? We got to do something about this. And then I was like, oh, okay. It looks pretty positive. <laughs> Yeah, you know, what's funny is um, there is this kind of like, there, okay, like, oh, I guess before I get to that, that part of it, is the reason why I, I wrote the post and I shared it was I happened to be following you on, on your Facebook page and I saw this really insightful post thinking, man, this is a shame that not, not more people are going to see it. Because when you write something on a Facebook page, it doesn't really rank uh, on Google. Uh, so yeah. and it kind of just disappears. So if you, if they weren't, you know, uh, following your page, that would have been, that information would have been gone. So first I thought, man, this is really good information. I want to put this, I want to share this. So instead of just sharing on my Facebook, like most people do, I decided to put it into a blog post. I decided to format it, with some photos, you know, I went and I looked, looked for like a video that you had, uh, like an interview, uh, that you had posted on, on your YouTube channel, the 10 fundamentals of principles to success that was related. So I better than there. And then I linked back to your page because I figured people would want to see your blog. And it wasn't some like gimmick or trick to, you know, befriend you or get on your good side. That was almost kind of like a, like a side benefit to it, you know, where I generally wanted to give my users good information. I wanted people to be able to find this, this stuff. And I guess you could like, you could do this, you know, with pretty much anyone that you, you want to connect with, you want to meet. And people always ask me like, how do, why is my network so good? Like, how do I get such, you know, influential people on my podcast? And I think it's because I give value first. I, you know, I'm really not, you know, this master planner of like, okay, I'm going to write this. And then you know, <laughs> however, you know, 12 years later, I'm going to, you know, ask him to come on my podcast. <laughs> but you know, when I asked you to come on, like right away, you're like, okay, yeah, cool. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, um, it's interesting. I was actually, you know, you remind me of something. Um, last week, I saw this quote that was very interesting. It's, it was by Chris Rock. And I'm going to butcher this, but you guys can Google the quote. But it said something along the lines of, uh, my car would always break down when I was broke. And I would just wait by the side of the road, waiting for someone to help. And no one ever helped me. It wasn't until I got out the car and started pushing the car that people would come out and start helping me. And that reminds me a lot about uh, influence and mentors because man, you know, when you build a public profile, you know, this Johnny, but people are always asking you to become their mentor. And, you know, I'm not 
I don't mentor people. I'm not trying to be a dick about it, but it's, it's not leverageable, especially when people send me these long emails and I'll send them a long email back and they don't do anything with it or they don't even <laughs> say thank you. They don't reply. So for me, when I, you know, I'm all about leverage and scale these days. So I'd rather spend that time writing a blog post that reaches like a lot more people. So in regards to, to this, you know, one, one way to connect with people is that I've tried that's really good is to give them value somehow or to show that you're implementing what they say. So for example, um, you know, people are sharing information all the time. Imagine if someone you admire shares this um, strategy for landing page conversions. Like they created this framework on landing page conversions. Okay, what if you literally implemented that, got results a week later and you go, hey, Johnny, I read your post on the landing page tricks. I actually implemented this a few, immediately after you said it. Here are my results. Can you give me any feedback? Oh my God, if you send that to someone, their reply rate is going to be like 100x. Because when you're getting all these people asking you for advice, you don't know who's actually going to implement it. And it really sucks to spend so much time and effort to give advice to someone and they don't implement it. So when you see someone who's actually pushing their own car or they're doing something cool with what you said, yeah, they're going to, they're going to, they see you're an action taker and they're going to want to help you. Like successful people want to mentor other successful people. They just don't know how to filter the entrepreneurs from the actual entrepreneurs. Yeah, 100%. And I think a lot of people get upset that once people are successful and they make it, you know, they stop helping kind of people starting out or they create, you know, like an expensive paid course or their coaching costs, you know, hundreds of or thousands of dollars. But it's literally because they got so tired of wasting their time helping people who didn't appreciate it or didn't implement it that it's either they can just never help anyone ever, or they can, you know, at least do it in a way where it filters people out, where they, they're paying for it or something. Man, you know what's, you know what's ironic? It, it's like, if I were to email someone like Tim Ferriss, and he doesn't reply to me back, I'm not going to think he's a dick. You know, I'm just gonna be like, oh, well, he's, he's really busy. I respect that. But man, you won't believe how many people have emailed me asking for help. And maybe, and you know, I always reply back. I'm like, hey, here's a resources. Here's a free course. Here's a blog post that will help. That's like the fastest way for me to help. And then they feel some type of way about it. And for me, I think that's actually a little disrespectful mm -hmm. because I'm like, hey, dude, I am helping you. I just can't help you the way that you want to because I can't on one hand preach you have to value your time. I can't preach scale and leverage, but at the same time, spend two, three hours a day answering emails. Cause I mean, I'm not getting like that many emails on a daily basis, but whenever there's like an email blast that comes out, oh my God, man, it's like, boom, a hundred replies. Yeah, I, I can see that. So on the, the very last episode of this podcast, uh, I had on Curtis Fields who became really successful in dropshipping and, but he's kind of just starting out too, where, you know, he just started getting really successful this year. And he yep. said on the podcast that he was helping other you know, members of the course for free and even like hopping on the phone with them. And, and he was like starting to get like, you know, so busy and overwhelmed that, you know, cause he would like, you know, he would work his job, he would go home, work on his store. And then he would like, you know, do these like 30 minute coaching calls and not charge people for it. And I was, and I was just thinking in my mind, I was like, I guarantee by the time this next episode comes out, he's going to be so <laughs> tired of people asking, you know, for the same questions all over and over. 
and either not doing it or having a million excuses and why, you know, you know, why their situation is different, why they can't do it, or just people just, you know, not even responding because, and I think the reason why people don't respond is because they know that if they respond, they have to take action. And if they just don't respond, they can kind of pretend it never happened, you know, even though they they had wasted his time or, or our time. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone goes through that phase when you're first successful, you know, you, you become a magnet for other people and other people want help. And most of us, we start helping others, but it comes to the point where you start, you just start burning out. You start burning out. And once again, you know, your friend, your buddy, his time is better spent working on his business, learning, and then sharing it with a more scalable medium, like a blog post or a YouTube video where he can reach unlimited amount of people pretty much. Yeah. Or a podcast. And, and I think this is why successful people don't mind coming and spending an hour on a podcast is because they know not only is it a, you know, that information and go to that one person, it's going to go to tens of thousands of people and it's going to be evergreen where, you know, five years later, people can still listen to it. People can still share it versus if they have a one-on-one conversation with someone, maybe it's a nice conversation, but it's, it's not scalable and, and it's not a good use of their time. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And that's, what's crazy. Like with this podcast, it's, um, October 23rd, 2020, who knows? Someone could be listening to this like five years from now and get a good nugget and it, it affects them in a positive way. Like that's why I just love about the internet. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. So the one thing I wanted to, to uh, switch topic I'm to switch to is when, you know, when I met you, you were living probably, I think in Vietnam and you're traveling around. Like yep. what, what happened? What made you move back to the U.S.? Sure. So let me go back to the beginning, the beginning on why I even left, left the U.S. So, you know, I started becoming really successful at affiliate marketing around 2008. And then, you know, I was in Atlanta. I was building my team. And then around early or late 2009, yeah, late 2009, a lot of stuff just started going downhill in my life. Um, I, me and my ex-girlfriend, we went through a really bad breakup. So I got dumped and it was like my first time getting dumped. You know, it's always like the toughest. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of had a a implosion in my team where, you know, my, my media buyers, I taught them everything I knew about affiliate marketing. And then they, uh, you know, they took their knowledge and they left a few months Mm -hmm. later. So in early 2010, man, I was like, I was like rock bottom. Like I was still making good money, but Dude, when your love life, your friendships, and all that stuff is rock bottom, it's really tough for you mentally. So that's when I thought to myself, you know what? What what is the point of all this? I was like, I, you know, I didn't get into affiliate marketing to be a millionaire. I didn't get into affiliate marketing to make a ton of money. I got into affiliate marketing because my mindset was forty thousand dollars a year. I told myself if I can make forty thousand dollars a year. Just, you know, and I was inspired by Tim Ferriss. I could just go live in Southeast Asia and I'll be pretty happy. So that's when I, you know, got back and thought what, what really motivates me. So I, I saw that several of my friends, um, I had a friend named Tan, a friend named Aaron. They both moved to Bangkok. So that kind of led me to Bangkok. Like it wasn't a, you know, there wasn't like a pros and cons chart, which country it was just, I had, I had established group there. So for me, picking my bags up for the first time, and going somewhere is already scary enough. Mm-hmm. So having a group of friends there would make it easy. So this was 2010 before like a huge wave of, you know, digital nomads came and I wasn't planning on living there. Like my plan was just to be there for six months. I just want to be there for six months, uh, get over my breakup, you know, travel, explore the world a little bit 
And back then I didn't, what was great about my time in, in Thailand is I didn't apply for any of those long-term visas. I didn't do the Muay Thai visa. I didn't do the student visa. So every single month I did a visa run. So it was <laughs> awesome. Like I would go to Vietnam and then I would go to Myanmar and, and then I would go to Cambodia. I went to um, China, Hong Kong. I, I would just Philippines. I would just constantly travel every single month. So while other people would take it as a pain in the ass, the visa run, I embraced it. Mm. So I was in Thailand for a year. And then I had to leave Thailand because I don't know if you remember, but uh, in 2011, there was a gigantic flood in Thailand, like mm. huge. I'm talking about like I was walking around the streets and the water went up to my thighs. Like wow. it was insane. So I had, I had to leave Thailand. So I went back to America for a little bit. And dude, when I was in America, I was miserable. I was like, oh my God, I want to go back to Asia. So then I thought to myself, you know what? Um, my lease is over in Thailand. Let me just go somewhere else. So I'm uh, Chinese, Cantonese, and I'm Vietnamese. So I'm Cantonese, Vietnamese. And you know, it always bothered me. I didn't know how to speak Vietnamese. So, and I didn't really connect to my culture that well because I was born and raised in America. So I decided, you know what? Let me go to Vietnam for a year and hang out. And this was a big, big experiment for me in pushing my social limits because my family, I had family in North Vietnam. So I have family in Hanoi and Haiphong, but I knew absolutely nobody, nobody in Ho Chi Minh City. So I packed my bags. I went to Ho Chi Minh City and I remember thinking, okay, here I am. Uh, what do I do now? So I went to the club. I went to the club by myself. And I remember the first time I went to the club was a disaster. It was a disaster. So I'm not trying to say anything bad about anyone, but I remember going to the club, trying to talk to people. And literally every single girl I talked to was like a, a, a working girl. So I, cause I didn't know, I'd never been to Vietnam before. So, and you know, I just, I just kept, I just kept going to clubs myself and stuff. And I was miserable, man. For the first week, I was like, what the heck am I doing here? Like, it, it feels weird. So then, you know, I'm really into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I decided to stop by the jiu-jitsu club. So I went to the jiu-jitsu club, had a few classes. And then later that night, I went to the club again. And then I was talking to a girl and someone else was talking to a girl and I'm making eye contact with him. And then he points at me and he puts me in a choke code. I'm like, okay, wow, dude this girl's not even all that you could have her man. Like, <laughs> but then, then he goes jujitsu, man. I was like, Oh shit. And he's like, who are you here with? I'm like, dude, I'm by myself. So he brought me back to the VIP table with all the other jujitsu guys. And they kind of became my squad, my crew. So that's cool. I, I was, so yeah, they were my crew. Uh, to and, pause there. That's yeah. always a good tip. If anyone ever is moving to another city or another country, if you do, a sport like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or if you do CrossFit or something that's very like kind of, I don't want to say cultish, but like very like brotherhoodish or very like, you know, like a family oriented-ish, yep. you'll always meet a cool crew of people. And usually, at yeah. least with Jiu-Jitsu and CrossFit, you, you meet very like type A people because they're both very, very hard sports. Yeah. And, you know, I love Jiu-Jitsu because it, it, you know, I still practice to this day. It just puts you in uncomfortable positions. So no matter what happens in life, no matter how uncomfortable it is, I'm like, holy crap, this is not as bad as being in bottom side control of a 200 pound ex wrestler. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, Vit Vietnam was good. You know, Vietnam was good. I learned Vietnamese. I hired a tutor. I mean, I'm not the best cause I'm kind of out of practice. I, um, you know, got into a long, long relationship there. And, you know, over time, 
what was interesting is I I stopped enjoying myself um, being mm. in in Asia. So and and this really bothered me. I couldn't understand why because you know I was making decent money. You know I was um, amazing amazing girlfriend. Um, and before I was in a relationship with her, I was you know dating around quite a bit. And I played a lot of video games. Like I, mm. I really liked StarCraft too. Mm. And I traveled a lot. I, I could I went to the beach like every every month. I would just fly. And I wasn't I wasn't happy. And this bothered me. Like, why am I not happy? At that point, I I was already a millionaire and I I had everything. This was the perfect life. Why mm. was I not, not happy? And it was really bothering me. I couldn't figure it out. And the problem with this, Johnny, is this is not something I can talk to someone else about. Because mm-hmm. I did try talking to other people about it. And they're like, you know, boo-hoo, here's the world's smallest violin yeah, yeah, yeah. for Charles. No one understood it. And I thought, you know, I, I thought something was wrong with me. And then I just mm-hmm. took a lot of time to sell. And, and you know, I told myself, no working this month. I'm just going to chill here and, and see what happens. Like, what, what's causing this sadness? I was thinking, like, maybe my, my serotonin and my dopamine was, was kind of messed up. But then, you know, I did this exercise where I just sat back and I wrote down, what are the top 10 happiest moments? Month? Like, okay, if I'm really unhappy right now, wait, what actually does make me happy? Mm-hmm. And I remember so many of those were business-related. Mm-hmm. So many of those were the day I quit my job was one of the happiest days of my life. The day I um, hit a certain financial milestone in my life was one of the happiest days of my life. The day I gave, wrote my parents a check to help them out with my finances was one of the happiest days of my life because I I showed them their sacrifice was not a mistake. They Mm -hmm. sacrificed, they, you know, left the Vietnam War um, were refugees for over a year before they came to America. Like, hey, all that hard-ass work, to be blunt, you did not raise a loser son that mm-hmm. just jerks off all day and watches hentai and plays video game or something. Like, your son made something of himself. So all those were like the happiest moments of my life. And I realized I wasn't having those moments anymore. I was not learning. I was <clears throat> coasting. I had, I, yeah, I was still making okay money because I had some stuff on autopilot and stuff, but I was no longer breaking records. Mm-hmm. I was no longer going out my comfort zone. So that's when I realized, okay, um, happiness equals progress. Happiness equals progress. And I, I realized I was living a life, uh, a very hedonic life, hedonistic life, where I was just enjoying life, which I mean, that's not bad if you're like older and stuff like that, but I wasn't, I'm not built that way. Not when I was 27, 28 Mm -hmm. years old. Like I needed to keep learning. I needed to learn more business. I needed to get back in the trenches even more. And I realized what, here's what people don't realize. The environment has a big impact on you. It really does. When I was living in Vietnam, I walk outside, dude, the average person in Vietnam makes like $300 a month. It's, you know, it's not a very rich country. And I just didn't have a lot of people that were my peers, my business peers to keep me motivated. So I just felt like if I was going to be in Bangkok, if I was going to be in Vietnam, it would make me lazy. And, you know, after I left later on over the next few years, a lot of people went to Bangkok. And I'll tell you this, man, the same thing happened to a lot of those digital nomads Mm -hmm. where they had a lot of fun. But man, they just get burnt out because there's only so many times you can do Funky Villa, RCA, you got the Thai girlfriend who's driving you crazy. It's like, it just, it just 
you know, not everyone's <laughs> built for that for the long term. Absolutely agree. Give me one second. I got to take a piss. Yep. Yep. All right. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I actually have so many friends who left Thailand or left Asia to go back to the U.S. to purposely live in a more expensive city where they'll be forced to kind of hustle, grow their business, make more money, but also just to be around other people with the same mindset. Yeah, I, I think, and, and that's why I've, I've moved so much in the past few years. Like I was in Atlanta, I moved to Bangkok, I moved to Vietnam, moved back to Atlanta, then I moved to Miami, then I moved to Manhattan, and then last year I moved back to Atlanta. Uh, the way I think of it is every period of my life, I have different goals. And there are certain environments, certain cities that help accelerate, reach that goals. So, you know, just like how, you know, I, I just don't understand the mentality of people that they're born in their hometown, spend their entire lives in their hometown and die in their hometowns. It's, it's like eating McDonald's your entire life. Like there's so much out there. Like, how do you know, unless you explore? So now I'm in Atlanta. Yeah. I, I was born here and I came back here, but I'm not the same guy. Like I know what's out there and I purposely chose to be back here because I want to be close to my parents. And when you're in like Manhattan, for example, and then uh, Miami, how was that different? Like what was, how did that change you? Oh, they're, they're totally different. I think, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't even know why I moved to Miami. I think I wanted to get out of Atlanta and Miami was interesting to me for a few reasons. One, uh, Florida is tax-free. I mean, so I saved like six or 7% taxes a year, which isn't enough reason to move, but you know, it was a nice bonus. I guess for me, I vacation in Miami a lot and I just associated Miami with just positive feelings, like the weather, um, and it was just it's such a fun city. So I just want to go down there. And I'm so glad I went down there because that's where I met my fiance. So I was down there for a year and a half. And then I had this, this itch, this feeling in my head where I was like, okay, Charles, you are 33 years old right now. And I realized the, my biological clock was ticking where I, I kind of felt like I have one more move in me left because my mentality is I never want to die with any regrets, you know? So what was my last regret? I was like, you know what? I've always wanted to live in Manhattan. I remember going there when I was 18 years old and telling myself, you know what, Charles, if you have the opportunity, you're going to move back here because in my head, like Manhattan just represented so much. To me. It, it represented like, Hey, these are where the hustlers are. This is where everything happens. So I kind of told myself, you know, I was in between San Diego, LA or New York city. And ultimately I chose New York city because you know, LA or San Diego. I mean, I could go there when I have kids, I can live there with kids. Manhattan is not really a place I would want to raise kids. So I decided to go there. I was there by myself for a few months and then I was like, okay, um, I miss my, I miss my uh, girlfriend at the time. So I was like, Hey, move up here with me. So she moved up and we spent two years there. And Manhattan, there's a big difference between Miami and Manhattan. Like Miami is not a place to make money. You know, mm. what I mean by that is how many, how many Fortune 500, name a single Fortune 500 company in Miami, mm. based in Miami. You can't name a single one. Maybe American Airlines, that's about it. Miami is a fun city, but man, it's just the mentality of the people there. It's very... Um, you know, I really hate to say this because I don't want to like stereotype, you know, a group of people or an entire city, but it's just like 
people are just so chill over there. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot of showing off. People are just mm-hmm. really uh, relaxed. It's hard to find workers. It's hard to find mm-hmm. talent. So I think of it like you make your money somewhere else, and then you go to Florida to spend your money to mm-hmm. vacation to have fun. But you don't want to actually live in Miami. And in New York, dude, I love New York so much. One. You know, no one ends up in Manhattan by accident mm-hmm. because it's so expensive. Holy crap, mm-hmm. my rent there was ridiculous. So everyone there is hustling, and that's what I love. New York exposed me to people in different industries. Uh, so you know, when you're a digital nomad, it's very easy to get into this bubble of other digital nomads, other internet marketers, other e-commerce guys, mm-hmm. and that leads to a lot of groupthink. So what I loved about New York is it exposed me to people who are successful in other fields. Mm. So I would always meet like I would meet hedge fund guys. I would meet uh, consultants. I would meet uh, Broadway actors. I would meet people that were at the top of their game, and I would just interview them, ask them questions, not like interrogate them, but I would just be like, "Hey, you know what led you to this?" And it's so interesting to see how the paths of success, even though they're completely different trajectories or career paths, there's so many.、Um, Commonalities、mm-hmm. with being successful in one thing versus being successful in another thing. So that's something I loved. And in New York, man, dude, there's always something to do. There's always something to do. And I feel living in New York made me more cultured because me and my, you know, me and my fiance every weekend we had to do something. We would go to improv show. We would,、um, we would go to a museum. We would go to a Broadway show. So we feel a lot more. A cultured, and what's great is you know I love Instagram, I love YouTube, so I'm I'm a big、uh, food lover, big foodie. So if something's like trending in Taiwan, something's trending in Korea.、Mm-hmm. Chances are it's probably in Manhattan, you know. Whereas if you're anywhere else in the states, it's gonna take like a few more years to get it. <laughs> yeah, I could I could definitely see that, like, especially with food wise. Like we're so spoiled living in big cities where we can literally have have everything versus being in you know really anywhere else in the world. So you decided to go back to Atlanta to be near your family. Kind of, what's your, what are your, what are your goals and your plans now? Kind of going forward. Yeah. So、uh, I like to divide things into business and personal. So on a personal, it's pretty simple. I got engaged in December, and you know we were in the middle of planning our wedding, and then COVID happened. So our wedding is delayed indefinitely for now. So this this does affect things. Because I did had a trajectory where okay I was gonna get married end of this year and then kids would come、uh, next year so I mean technically I could still get married I could still have kids but you know both of us we just kind of decide we we rather delay things、mm-hmm. so on one end I'm I'm kind of relieved because it you know it's definitely difficult to be an entrepreneur when you have kids so if I can delay that a little bit by a year or two more then in a way I feel like that gives me more. Uh, productive output while I still feel like I have so much, so much energy and motivation right now.、Um, on the business side, so、uh, over the past few years, I kind of did two things. I did、uh, CPA marketing, and I also did、uh, a lot of courses. So you know, I had two courses. I had、um, a twelve thousand、uh, dollar workshop called the Superfood Intensive. I did that for a few years, and then I got I got burned out. I got burned out, and then I decided to get into the online course space. So I did a course.、Um, it's still doing well. It, everything's completely automated.、Uh, you know, web automated webinar, and everything's automatically delivered. 
Uh, so I did that. And then in December, I decided to like stop everything. Uh, in December, I made an announcement. I'm going to leave CPA marketing mm. uh, because to be blunt, I just wasn't challenging myself. You know, I just wasn't challenging myself. I, I realized that I wasn't being fulfilled. You know, running another CPA campaign wouldn't fulfill me. Uh, creating another course of any kind wouldn't fulfill me. It just got to the point where I rather make less money doing something I really love that challenges me than mm -hmm. making a ton of money doing the same shit over and over again. And I remember thinking to myself a long time ago, man, I don't want to be like 40 years old and still doing the same shit mm -hmm. uh, to be blunt. So that's when I kind of, and you know, a, a lot of my friends and other people were like, you know, why, why make it so public? Why make that announcement? Just keep doing mm -hmm. what you're doing, sell courses while you work on your next projects. And bro, I'm a big believer in burning the ships. Mm. Like you ever heard that analogy, burning ships? Yeah, it's um, they burned the ships so they wouldn't have to go back and then they would you know, conquer the new world. I mean, it's a horrible story. <laughs> yeah. But you know, the, the, the concept is, is quite motivating. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to burn the ships by declaring, you know what? I'm going to leave the affiliate marketing space. And you know, I did that in December. So right now, you know, it, it's been a difficult year because some of my you know, some of my plans haven't worked out because of COVID made things a little bit difficult. So mm -hmm. I would say like right now, um, I'm kind of focused on two things. One is I still have the brand going. So I still have charlesngo.com going. Um, you know, I have a pretty big list, like 55,000 people on my email list. And I kind of figured, you know, I, and having an audience is gold. Mm -hmm. You know, having an audience is gold. When you look at someone like uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, Joe Rogan, they're never going to ever be broke ever, like mm. ever. <laughs> Why? Because they have an audience. So for me, I kind of realized I've spent so much time cultivating this audience that when I look at the future, I don't really, I don't know what's the next step, but it doesn't hurt to have an audience that I can broadcast things to. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, I love, love learning about business. I feel when you have a blog or you have a podcast or YouTube, you have to stay sharp. You can't be talking about the same crap you talked about 15 years ago or 10 years ago. Mm. So by having a blog in a way, it, it's like an accountability partner that I have mm. to keep learning. I have to keep growing so that I can share uh, the best stuff with my audience. And I just have mm. this very giving mentality. Like I don't really hold back a lot of things. Like if I learn something really cool or I learn a really cool book, I want to share it with people. Like I'm not keeping it to myself because I really do believe the more you give to the world, the more you get back. And in a mm. way, it uh, becomes deal flow because I'm actually getting a lot of deals or opportunities where people want me to be an investor. People want me to be an advisor. People want me to, uh, they have this idea. They got some traction. They want me to come in as a business partner. So when mm -hmm. you have an audience and you're constantly writing, you're always getting this deal flow, which is really hard to measure. So, mm -hmm. you know, I keep that up. I mean, it still makes okay money, but I don't do it for the money. I do it because I just want to keep the reputation, keep the brand going. And you just never know what, um, what kind of friendships, relationships, you know, a, a audience leads to. The second thing I'm working on right now is, you know, I'm trying to figure out what my next idea is. So I'm spending a lot of time just constantly coming up with ideas and validating and mm -hmm. testing ideas. So I'm in, you know, I'm constantly... You know, it, it reminds me of, uh, there's a story I really like um, by Naval. The mm. story is this. Most people are working like cows where they just graze and eat nu low nutrient grass all the time. And that's just kind of the way the nine to five structure 
uh, where you're always working. Uh, instead, try working like a lion. So in this story, he says the lion just, what do they do? They rest, they sleep, they're coming. And when they see a big opportunity like an antelope, they go at it 100%, 100% all in. They kill it and then they rest. So for me, man, I feel like I've been working so hard for the past 12 years without much of a break. So right now I'm just slowing down, testing my ideas, uh, figuring out what, what's next. You know, I'm looking at, man, I'm, I'm looking at COVID. You know, I'm looking at COVID and I'm thinking to myself, what are these inflection points that are happening because of COVID? Because that's where the opportunities are. So for example, okay, COVID has happened. Well, what changes have happened because of COVID? Mm -hmm. Obviously, uh, people are working at home. People are virtual schooling. People are working out at home. So then when these inflection points spots opportunity, so then I would just brainstorm, okay, what happens next because of that? So one example could be, well, first order consequences are kids are virtual learning at home. So then from there, I might think to myself, okay, well, what do they need? Mm -hmm. What do they need? Because uh, I really, I really like e-commerce. You know, I mean, there's a lot of great business models out there. I, I hate services. I'm not a technical guy. Uh, I think e-commerce is, you know, solid, like it fits my skill set. So now I'm like, well, what do, what do kids need if they're at home? Well, perhaps they need a uh, kid size ergonomic chair, mm -hmm. or perhaps they need a kid size desk. So from there, I would do a lot of research into like, okay, who are the incumbents? Um, and how can I test that their mistake is they think of an idea and they spend like 5,000 hours buying inventory. And when they actually launch it, no one buys it. I'm like, holy crap, you just wasted six months and a lot of money. So instead, I'm in the process of how can I test this idea, whatever it is, cheaply. So this could be, okay, this kid's desk idea I have. Who's the number one? Do they have an affiliate program? Oh, they do have a, an affiliate program. Let me run it as an affiliate marketer and let me just see if I can get this funnel working. Can I get the right angles, the right ads? Can I make sure the distribution is locked in and let me learn everything that I can about this model? And then, okay, this is the incumbent. Well, what problems do they have? How can I fix this? Maybe um, there are kids' ergonomic chairs. However, uh, you know, I can do some research and I see that, well, they're all like designed like, like a steel case or Herman Miller. Mm. Maybe kids just want an animal print or a Elsa or frozen or something like that. So I'm, I'm looking for opportunities because you just can't come in as a me too. And then you validate it through, you know, I mentioned that affiliate marketing is one, or you could, uh, you could drop ship though. I don't quite recommend it due to like two or three, you know, two or three months, or you could just set up a, a landing page. And then make some sale, you know, try to make some sales and then just refund the people because you're just mm -hmm. trying to gather data. So that's kind of like where I am right now. I have found some ideas that I do like, but it's not they. I do like them. They are profitable, but they're not, they're not something that I want to spend the next 10 years of my life doing. Mm -hmm. They're not something that just excites me. And I'm past, I'm past the money making stage of my life. Don't get me wrong. I'm not like, I'm not worth like $50 million or anything like that, but I, you know, I'm at a point where I'm very comfortable, where I can be selective about my opportunities. So were you smart enough to invest and, and save the money you made or did you blow it all on, uh, on partying and, and drinks? I would, I would say uh, a little bit of half, half. So it, it really disappoints me because, you know, before I started affiliate marketing, before I made money, I was actually really into the financial uh, independence community. You know, I was, I was a bago head way before, mm. but then, you know, I started making money and I wasn't, um, I spent a lot of money, 
you know, upgraded my place. I got nice cars. When I was in Manhattan, I, uh, you know, had a very expensive place. Which was your rent this, in New I York? It was uh, 7000 a month. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and was, I remember uh, seeing your place in Miami. It was like overlooking the water and it was beautiful as well. How much was that? Uh, 3800 Oh, my God. And compared to, so compared to your place in uh, Saigon and Bangkok, how much were those? Do you remember? Okay. Well, let's just play the game. How much is everything? And Okay. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, Vietnam was a two, you know, was a two bedroom huh. outside the main city for 800. Okay. In, uh, Bangkok, I had a really nice place. It was a loft that was 1100. Uh, my place now I'm renting for how much is my, how much is my rent? I think 3000. Yeah. We have a nice townhouse for 3000. So I'm a, I'm a huge renter. I am anti-property because, dude, when you move a place every two years, man, last thing you want to do is buy a place and be tied down. So I just mm -hmm. love renting and know mm -hmm. if you do the math, it's it's not throwing your money away. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, those are those are all the places. So I had nice uh, nice cars. So with with me, yeah, I definitely saved a lot of my money. And when it comes to investments, I keep it really simple, man. I would say like. I mean, a lot of my money is actually, they're still in my companies because um, it's, it's, you know, a little expensive to take the money out. Uh, you get taxed on them, but I'm a huge Bagua head. Like I have a lot of money in uh, Vanguard. So mm -hmm. Vanguard index funds. I did the crypto thing back in 2007. I sold all my crypto. I don't own crypto anymore. Um, but yeah, I, you know, my philosophy is keep things as simple as possible. You know, I know, you know, I'm not talking crap about real estate. I know you can make money in real estate, but the idea of buying a property and being a landlord, holy crap, man, I don't want to like be in the middle of a business deal or something. And then my tenant is letting me know that their toilet's not working. Um, you know, it doesn't make sense to me. So I like things as simple as possible. So the way I, I think about money and wealth is you need a golden egg. Okay. You need a golden egg, whatever it is. You know, it could be your job. It could be e-commerce. It could be dropshipping. It could be affiliate marketing. It, it, that's your main moneymaker. And you want to focus as much of your mental energy towards that as possible. Then you have to diversify. Okay. Because it's just smart to diversify. And whatever you diversify in, it needs to be as hands off as possible. So I have like, you know, uh, I, I like index funds is VTSAX. I only check my money like once a month when I do my monthly income reports, not report, but my uh, spreadsheet. I have a spreadsheet to track everything. So there's that, you know, I, I also like, um, I have some physical gold. Um, and that's about it. You know, stuff like stuff, like when you're investing in real estate, it takes mental energy away because mm -hmm. that means I have to learn about the market. I have to manage, Hey man, that's like a hundred hours I could spend learning copywriting, or that's a hundred hours I can spend learning how to become a better leader, which is infinitely more leverageable. Cause I like to think in terms of edges when it comes to stocks, you know, I got some friends that they, um, you know, they invest in individual stocks, Amazon, Tesla for every Amazon, Tesla, they also have a lot of bad ones. So mm -hmm. I refuse to invest in individual stocks. I want to, there's a part of me that wants to invest in Shopify. <laughs> there's a mm -hmm. part of me that wants to invest in Tesla, but man, I know myself. I would be so addicted to the dopamine. I would constantly be mm. refreshing the stocks. I would constantly be refreshing, looking up news. I would constantly be refreshing Elon Musk's uh, tweets and stuff. But dude, my investments are so freaking boring mm. that I focus all my time on my business. 
Yeah, that's smart. You know, and a lot of people don't realize that when you hold an index fund like, uh, you know, VXUS, which is basically the, oh, actually, VXUS is the total uh, international stock market. You, you're you, you probably holding total total US. I do a VTSAX. Uh, so VTSAX. I do, um, yeah, I do 80% United States and 20% international, uh, okay. 0% bonds. So that's mm-hmm. my philosophy. That's smart. So, yeah, a lot of people don't realize that when we own index funds, we also own Shopify, we own Tesla shares, we own Facebook shares, and we also own a bunch of other ones. And so we're still getting the benefit when things like Tesla go up. We just don't have to you know, emotionally be attached to, to what Elon's doing or what you know, crypto is doing. I mean, there's so many people out there who spend all day and all night thinking, you know, thinking, reading everything about cryptocurrency or Bitcoin and they have like $20,000 invested and that's like their entire life of waiting for it to go up and down while that same amount of time and energy that they spent, you know, reading about it, talking about it, arguing about it, they could have built a business making 20 grand a month and investing in, a, in an index fund and it's not thinking about it. Bro, those guys, that's not investing, man. That's gambling. <laughs> that's straight up gambling and it's hitting their mentality. And for me, I think, I think a lot about edges. Like, bro, I have zero edge in real estate. I don't know anything about real estate. I have zero edge in investing. So if I don't know anything about real estate, I don't know anything about investing. Why would I get into those realms, right? Why would I, instead, what do I have an edge in internet marketing? So why not focus on my strengths and get a hundred percent, focus hundred percent of my time towards those. And that's where I find really, you know, really, um, confused about that. You have all these people, every, it's, a, it's a mentality where, uh, Donner, Kunig effect or something where people think they're smarter than they really are. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very important to know yourself and it's okay to be like really dumb at something. Like I have no problems admitting, I don't know anything about real estate and I'm okay mm-hmm. with that. And you know, that's something I, I learned from studying businesses and resources. Like you can't be good at everything. If you look at Walmart, what are they good at? They're good at low prices, but mm-hmm. what happened because of that? They don't have nice ambience in their stores. Mm. Like if you want nice ambience, well, the prices are going to go up. So for me, that's kind of like what I realized. If I want to become a better uh, internet marketer, I want to become a better affiliate marketer. Well, that means I have to suck at different areas of my life. So I have to be very mindful what areas of my life I'm going to double down on. Like I double down on anything health related. I double down on learning productivity. I double down on learning how to sell. You know, that Mm. is infinitely scalable. But then there's so many things I, um, I just kind of, I kind of suck with, like, I, I don't watch that much TV and you know, dude, I love game of Thrones. I love TV. Mm. I love breaking bad, but I realize, you know, if, if I'm going to have some downtime, if I'm going to relax watching a TV show or a movie, it isn't very productive. Like I can, I can go to jujitsu and with jujitsu, I'm getting so many benefits. Like I'm getting, I'm getting bro time. Like, mm-hmm. dude, holy crap, COVID. I'm with my, you know, fiance 24 seven, like it's too much feminine energy. So I go to jujitsu, I get my bro time. I exercise, I'm learning mastery. So it's so many more benefits than that. So mm-hmm. my point is, you know, you can't be good at everything, you know, maybe unless you're Elon Musk or something, but for the rest of us mortals, you got to pick what you're going to be good at and what you're going to suck at. I like it. And I really want to applaud you for staying staying like uh, I don't even know what the word is like but staying at a high level and everything you do pretty much ever since I met you you know at least for the last seven years 
you've like you've always been in decent shape you've always been productive you've always been making money like it seems like a lot of people who can can do it for a little bit can do it for three months or six months or a year maybe three years and then they just fuck up or they stop <laughs> why, why do you is, think that is uh, i think a lot of people they, they burn the i don't know I mean, I, I, it could be a lot of things. I, I think the reason why you're good at it is first, you actually enjoy it. Second, you, you take the time to reflect on, on why you're doing it. And third, you, you build systems and you follow it. I think other people take two modafidils and then, you know, it's just like, like just, just, you know, just like burn the candle at, two, at both ends and do things that they don't really want to do just for the money or just for the result. And that, that, you know, that motivation that can only last so long. So, so here's, here's how I think of it. Cause you know, this is something I, I spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, one is I'm actually, I wouldn't concern myself that motivated. Like, you know, I know everyone looks at me. Some people look at me as a source of motivation, but dude, I don't wake up in the morning. Oh, I'm going to kill it. I'm going to crush it. You know, that's, that's not me. I think the big difference with me is I have, extremely strict boundaries in my life. Like, bro, I don't work on the weekends. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do not work on the weekends. I wake up at 7 a.m. I do my mor- one hour morning routine and I work, about, I work about eight hours a day. And then after, you know, so yeah, that's my schedule. I wake up at 7 a.m., one hour morning routine. Uh, I work deep work for four hours. So I'm a huge fan, huge proponent of Cal Newport. I take a one hour lunch and then I work another four hours. But I swear my, my eight hours of work is probably the equivalent of 20 hours of work from other people because mm-hmm. I have my Facebook block. I have YouTube block. I have my three most important tasks uh, blocked. I'm completely, completely laser focused during those uh, eight hours. So for me, I, I don't get burned out because I, uh, after 4 PM, you know, I take a break, I chill, I do some stretches. Maybe I'll, I'll watch something really quick. I go to jujitsu. I come back, I eat dinner, a, I get like nine hours of sleep a night, like eight or nine hours of sleep. And then every single quarter, I take a week off. I go to the woods and I just plan for the upcoming quarter. So I think a lot of other people, they keep, they keep running these sprints and they burn out. Mm-hmm. But when you look at these race cars, you look at NASCAR, man, you're, you're driving around. They take pit stops. Mm-hmm. They have to take pit stops. You just can't win the race, but you're going to burn yourself out. So for me, I think of it like, okay, I have to make sure that, I have these pit stops in my life. So I think that's, that's the first one. Uh, the, the second one is do stuff that you enjoy. Like every, you know, I'm very selective about the projects I work on. Um, so let me give you an example. Like a, a lot of people have asked, like, why do I not have a podcast? <laughs> you know, and I used to, I used to have a, um, I used to be very active on my YouTube channel. I don't really do that anymore, but I'm very consistent with my emails. Like I email, I send an email out every single week for the past, like what, 10 years. So it's because, man, I don't look forward to interviewing people. I don't mind being interviewed, but interviewing someone else, like I just, I don't, it doesn't excite me. It's not a hell. Yeah. Uh, YouTube, I'm way too much of a freaking perfectionist for YouTube. Oh my Mm -hmm. God. And it's just such friction writing. I really enjoy writing. You know, I really enjoy that. And affiliate marketing and courses and stuff, as much money as it made, it, I stopped looking forward to it. I remember one day I woke up, I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I like to think of my life in terms of five-year increase. So, you know, I'm 35. I just turned 35. The next five years, that's a different phase of my life. Mm-hmm. So align yourself with what you truly enjoy doing. And what I love about 
2020 is you can monetize anything. Holy crap. Mm -hmm. Like the number of crap I've seen on like, there's, there's, there's millionaires from teaching people how to declutter, declutter. There's people making five figures a month, teaching you how to take care of succulents. There's Mm -hmm. people making courses on how to teach like really weird dances. So, you know, really stick to what you like doing. And my final thing is actually what I agreed with what you, your assessment of, of my life is every day I'm very, um, cognitive and aware of what I do on a daily basis and whatever I don't enjoy, I outsource it, you know, Mm -hmm. through an executive assistant, through Fiverr, through someone. So in a way I I think of it like, um, (laughs) dude, you're, you're like the only guy that will get this Peking duck. Okay. Mm -hmm. You like Peking duck. I like, dude, who doesn't like Peking duck? So for me, I look at Peking duck, like my work day. Okay. The, the juicy pieces are the breasts. The juicy pieces are the thighs. Okay. Dude, no one likes eating leftovers the next day where everything's bony and there's no meat. Mm. So those, I give it to someone else. Mm. So I got to book a trip. I don't want to do that. I give it to someone else to do. And here's what people don't understand. Whatever you hate doing, there is someone out there that would love, love the opportunity to eat your scraps. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, I, pardon me, I'm not trying to be demeaning about eating scraps and all this stuff, but it's like, I don't want to book this trip I don't want to answer these emails. So it's like, I realized, for example, a really simple one is, okay, I get a lot of emails. Well, just hire a customer service person and she filters out all the emails. So the only emails I get are the emails that I enjoy writing back to. And, you know, I say no a lot. Like, I think this is like the first podcast I've done in a long time. Cause you know, I've had some other podcast opportunities, but I'm like, who, who is this guy? What is this? And I'm like, holy crap. They just want to talk about making money. You know, I love talking about making money. Don't get me wrong, but I just, it just didn't excite me. It's not a hell yeah. Mm-hmm. So then I see, I see you, you want to do a podcast. I was just like, hell yeah, dude, let's, let's do it. Because does this make me happy? Does this spark joy? So that, yeah, Marie Kondo actually uh, has influenced me a lot. Like, does this spark joy? If not, dude, I don't have to do it. I don't yeah. have to say yes. I'm not in that stage of my life anymore where I have to say yes to everything. In fact, once you reach a certain point, you, uh, you have to grind your ass off for a decade so that you can say no. I like it. So I, I'm super curious. Why was this a hell yes for you? Um, you know, I, I've never listened to an episode of your podcast okay. before. So, it, so it's not like I, I know what the thing is. I think uh-huh. uh, it's two reasons. Number one, uh, you know, we've spoken a few times. I've always enjoyed talking with you. Um, another one is I feel like we're actually quite similar. Um, mm-hmm. Our you know, I know you've done jujitsu. We're both Asian Americans. We, uh, you know, we like women a lot. We travel. <laughs> it's like, we just, we just have a lot in common. And, mm-hmm. and for me, uh, it's actually quite difficult, man, to like make friends sometimes. Okay. Like it's, it's very interesting. I know a lot of people, mm-hmm. but there's not a lot of people I feel comfortable with because sometimes I feel like some, some people just say hi because they want something from you, but they mm. don't view me like an actual human being. And then uh, you said something very interesting in your, in your Facebook message to me. Like you want to talk about uh, why did I leave Asia? And I was like, what the heck? No one's ever asked me that before. <laughs> I found that very interesting because, you know, for me, I understand that I have a lot of knowledge or experience in affiliate marketing and making money online. And yeah, I've done some podcasts asking about that, but for someone to ask me about my personal life, because that leaving Asia was Mm -hmm. an extremely difficult 
and pivotal moment in my life. And no one's ever asked me about that before. And mm. I think it's one of those things where there would be a lot of value. So I'm like, okay, Johnny's going to like bring the heat. He's going to ask some marketing questions, which is, but he's also going to ask some other interesting stuff. Yeah. And you know, here's something that people, uh, oh, one more thing. Hey, uh, sorry to cut you off. Something about, um, you know, good conversation is sometimes you ask things where, I don't have the answer and I have to think, okay, why did I do this? Or why did I move that? So in a way, good conversations help you understand yourself more. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And yeah, you know, it's funny this, uh, if you, if you do listen to some other episodes of this podcast, it's, it's, it's called travel like a boss and it's supposed to be like business and travel and life, but nobody ever, ever actually understands it from the title. So half the people come disappointed that it's, uh, they think it's just about travel and the other people come disappointed because they think it's just about business. <laughs> and I know I could do such a better job uh, if I just chose one or the other, or if I marketed better. But it's been one of those things where I just never cared about making money from this podcast or even like forcing a bigger audience. I really like having these kind of conversations to talk about kind of the bigger parts of life. And the people that do listen to this, especially the people who are still listening like an hour and a half in, they're the ones who really, I don't want to say deserve this information, but they're the ones who are going to get the most out of this and the most out of life. So really appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you guys for, for listening. You know, you guys are really, you know, the, the, like you guys, you guys are the reason why I, I keep doing this because people, you know, people actually listen to the whole thing and like literally people write probably every week or every month saying like these conversations change their lives. And I'm so privileged to have friends like you. You know, I like, I, I actually agree too. Like I've all, like, I don't know, what it was. I think it was probably everything you said about us just being very similar, but I've always kind of enjoyed hanging out with you and talking to you, even though literally we haven't spoken in like years, but it feels like I just spoke to you last month. I, I think that's something I, I uh, like about this industry or certain friends where, you know, maybe we didn't see each other for so many years and then we see each other and it's like nothing happened. Whereas man, I really hate when I've seen this play out in other friendships where people don't talk for a few years and they think there's some beef. Like, did I say something mm -hmm. or is there some drama I'm not aware of? But, you know, with entrepreneurs, I think we get each other. Like we're busy just because we don't talk to each other. doesn't mean uh, there's no positive emotions or, or we're not checking up on each other. Like, oh, I saw that. I saw that uh, status. Oh, cool. He's, he's in Sri Lanka, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, you know, that's something I, I like that with entrepreneurs, there's usually, it, it attracts really weird people, you know, mm -hmm. same, same with the people, anyone that's listening to this podcast right now, you're, you're really weird. And I mean that in a good <laughs> way, like who the fuck listens to a podcast an hour, 40 minutes in, uh, you guys are weird, but at the same time, that's such a great thing because my, my philosophy in life is I believe that the average person is uh, mediocre. The average person has a pretty crappy life. So just think about what the average person does and do the exact opposite. Do the exact opposite. The average person has a job. Then what's the opposite? Start your own business. The average person watches Netflix all the time. What's the opposite? Listening to a podcast. The average person eats, um, eats out all the time, eats like crap. What's the opposite? Cook your own healthy food. Uh, average person gets five hours of sleep a night, six hours. Do the opposite. What's that? Like nine hours of sleep a night. So if you just follow that mental model, um, you'll be, you'll be set. And I think it's very important as well. You know, that's why I like podcasts and YouTube channels because it can feel extremely lonely. And I did, you know, open up about how, how lonely and miserable I was during certain parts in Thailand and Vietnam, 
But even back in Atlanta, man, when I first started affiliate marketing, dude, I was really, really lonely because everyone thought I was entering a scam. Mm -hmm. So to have like a forum or a podcast and realize, hey, there's other people out there that were on the same path. They're just like you. Maybe they're a little bit further ahead. It lets you know, like, holy crap, there's other people out there and they made it work and I'm not alone. And that's, you know, why what you do, the podcast is such a, a valuable service for people's confidence, their mental health, or just, you know, maybe they're just on a commute and they just want to waste some time. But I think podcasts and, and stuff definitely helps people out and you're doing great service to uh, the world. Yeah, I appreciate it. Man, thanks for spending so much time on the, on the episode. Like normally they're like an hour long and I, but we just had such, like I, I didn't want to hang up. I was just like, man, there's like such good things to talk about. And there's also been fun kind of catching up with you as well. Yeah, I don't really think of this as a podcast episode. I just think of us as hanging out <laughs> and people are, you know, uh, hang out with us from a distance. So totally uh, off topic, something you, you mentioned right in the beginning. I want to try to guess your StarCraft race and i'm gonna say for sure it wasn't zerg because i feel like that's like too like fast action and mindless i think it would have for sure it's either protoss or Tyrion. and i think i i would at first i was thinking maybe Tyrion because you could like you know build up a, like a solid defense like bunkers everywhere but i i don't know why if you i'm, I'm gonna lean towards protoss what, what was your what was your race um Terran. so okay, what's i was okay. Terran, dude i was for the period I was in StarCraft, I was really good. I got Grandmaster, which was like top 200 people in America. And wow. I, so I was a Terran because, um, so, so you're right. I, I'm, uh, I'm not a Zerg because the Zergs are, I just feel hyper aggressive. Mm -hmm. They're very aggressive. Uh, I was a Terran because uh, you could do dropships, right? So what I like to do is one, I would use siege tanks to set up my defense. And then, you know, because I'm Vietnamese, you know, during the Vietnam War, the Vietnam, <laughs> Vietnamese people were known for guerrilla warfare. So uh -huh. I thought, okay, Sun Tzu, what makes sense in my head is, okay, I set up a good defense and I'm constantly harassing people from different angles using their, using their dropships. <laughs> so the only way I could do that was, was the Terrans. And I also thought to myself, I think I have this, I love underdogs. So a lot of people were playing Zergs. A lot of people were playing uh, Protoss. So, and I noticed Terrans were being underrepresented. Like I always, mm. always cheer for the underdogs and stuff. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to step it up for the Terrans. And I think, man, I think that just comes from being Asian, man. You know, you're always the underdog being an Asian, I feel. So it's just kind of encompassed all aspects of my life and thinking. That's funny. I think a lot of people don't realize that Asians were underdogs because I think in 2020, we're not really underdogs anymore. If anything, you know, there's too many smart Asians. Now Harvard and Yale have to you know, make it even more difficult. We have to have higher scores to get in, you know, just because there was too many. But growing up, I, like we were complete underdogs. Like, like we were treated as bad or worse than the Mexican immigrants or the African-Americans or really any other race. I think Asians, we, we were just able to, I think it was just in our culture to just shut up, grind and say, all right, well, if it's not fair and we have to work twice as hard, so be it. We'll just shut up and work twice as hard to get what we need to do. I mean, there, there was just so much discrimination because of COVID, you know, people were calling it the China flu, the Chinese virus. There was a lot of racism that, you know, for the most part, we're the invisible minority, the model minority, but man, you know, fortunately I've never experienced overt racism in my life, but 
you know, I, I have experienced, I don't know what the term is, but maybe microaggressions mm. because my, you know, my fiance is, is white, you know, she's a white Hispanic and dude, I just remember, you know, going around um, Miami and just walking with her and just hearing a lot of racism because uh, she looks white. She understands Spanish and just, you know, Hispanics would be like, you know, what the fuck is she doing with that guy? Uh, or just, you know, I would be at the bar and she's by herself. She would get approached by uh, someone else. And then I come here and they see me and, you know, I'm a small dude. I'm like five foot six. They wouldn't see me as a threat and they would still keep talking to her. Mm-hmm. So I, don't, I, you know, I'm pretty sure being Asian plays a part in it. So it was just, you know, I do experience a lot of racism. It's just not as bad as like, the Hispanics or the blacks have experienced in the States, but you know, it is, it is there, but fortunately, you know, I, I don't let it, I don't let it bother me. Yeah, that's good. I like it. Well, I mean, that was honestly, I, don't, I, I, I did experience a lot of racism uh, growing up, like straight up, like in my face racism, you know? Uh, like, I mean, I think that's why I was so bad with girls and I overcompensated by you know, learning too much and reading too much about, you know, game and pickup and stuff like that. But like, I literally was just like a normal, nice guy. And I would go up to a girl and say, hi, like, you know, can, can I buy you a drink? Or like, can I talk to you? Yeah. And I've literally had girls laugh at me and say, you know, like, I would never date a chink like you. Like, how dare you even think that you have a wow. chance? With and I was like, oh my God, like, and it, it would destroy me for months, you know? And that's you know why I think for sure me, but I think a lot of guys, you know, overcompensate and you know, get too much into that stuff. Uh, luckily it's kind of all balanced out and now I'm kind of like a normal guy, but it was hard growing up. It was really hard, especially, you know, without, you know, like Asian male mentors in my life or uh, on TV, even on TV. I mean, only person we had was Bruce Lee. And yeah. <laughs> I think, um, you know, Asians are making a comeback. BTS is cool. Uh, even though the average American Asian American does not look like freaking BTS. We don't have perfect skin. We're not six feet tall and can dance perfectly, but you know, I, BTS? I feel like, are you serious? You don't know who BTS yeah, is? I have no idea. Okay. Google BTS. They're like the biggest K-pop band, but okay. I mean, there's other K-pop bands, but they actually broke into mainstream America. Like, dude, they are mainstream. Bag tan boys. I've never heard of them. Oh, bro. You dude. Oh my God. I've been Ask your Facebook fans like who is BT? Yes, dude, they are, they are huge. But, you know, final thing about, you know, being Asian American is I think one, you know, you develop this mentality of having a chip on your shoulder because we do have to work twice as hard and we do have to um, bear the pressure of our parents to make sure that, hey, they immigrated here, they sacrificed that they're, you know, them working two, three jobs isn't going to waste. But you know, I always try to look at the upside of everything that it created a stronger work ethic in myself. And I can't speak for everyone, but I feel like it made me more empathetic towards everyone else. Like, I, I don't know what it's like to be Hispanic. I don't know what it's like to be black. And I'm just going to be, you know, I don't know what it's like to be white because white people do experience racism themselves, you know, because there's different groups of them. So I not I want to like, be a white guy in 2020. <laughs> So, so I feel like, um, you know, growing up Asian made me more empathetic towards everyone and realized like every, no one knows the struggles I went through growing up or the struggles I go through now, but you know what? I've realized that everyone has their own struggle and mm-hmm. I want to be nice, nice to everyone. You are a nice guy. I'm glad you're directing it towards uh, people that deserve it and not just uh, letting people take advantage or, or leech off of you. Cause I, I think that's 
the reason why most people end up broke or not kind of anywhere in life. I mean, there's a good book. Actually, the, the book itself is pretty boring, but the, the title gives it away. It's um, what was it? It was something, something to do with like who who get like uh, the giving or something. And it was like the the richest people in the world are givers, but also the poorest people in the world are givers. The only difference is who they give to. Like poor people give to everyone, mm-hmm. which me and in general, you know, it's like the leechers that just take, 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 take. So they have nothing else to give. They're broke. Is it a give, give and take? Give and take that. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. Adam Grant, Give and Take by Adam Grant. Great, great book. Uh, definitely made me more of a giver. Yeah. And I think I've always been a giver too. And I think naturally, I just never liked giving to people who are takers. So I always give to, like, to other givers. You know, if someone has good, good content, good value, I always want to give it out first and never ask for anything. And I think by right. doing that, I've, I've gotten so much back in return without ever asking for it. Or when I do ask for you it, know, people uh, always say yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the devil's advocate of this because I'm, I'm a big giver. But here's, here's the downside of my mentality I have a lot of trouble asking mm. anyone for help. Mm. Like I never ask people for help. I never ask for favors. I never ask for anything because I just have this feeling like I don't want to owe anyone anything. So, uh, so that's, that's like one of my weaknesses that I'm mm. uh, trying to work on. So instead I just have this mentality, let me just give, 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 but then I never like ask for anything in return. But at the same mm. time, it's like, I can't figure everything out myself, you know, and, and someone actually um, um, called me out on this. And he reframed things where he told me, it's like, dude, you have to let, uh, you have to give me a chance to repay you. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not fair to me if you don't. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I understand see that. And I think a lot of times we don't realize that when we ask for something, it's doing them, they're ha- like, it makes, it brings them joy as well. You know, one thing I started doing is like, I don't take, I mean, it's hard, to, it's hard to phrase this, but like, I don't actually need my, my father to do anything for me any, you know, like anymore. You know, I'm an adult. I make my own money. I don't really yep. need his advice anymore. I don't really need him to do anything. But what I try to do is at least once a month, I ask him a favor. Either, and it's always something small, right? Like, like dad, like, I'm so sorry. Like, someone sent a, a check to, my, you know, to, to the house. Do you mind, you know, going to deposit it? Uh, dad, how do you know, how do I say this in Chinese? You know, or dad, you know, like, like, and it's always like, you know, small things here and there, but what it does is it makes them feel needed. Number one, it gives them an excuse to kind of connect and gives them an excuse to call me. You know, he'll like, he, my dad would never ever, like he would never call me, but if yep. he went to, you know, uh, deposit a check, you know, three blocks away, you know, from my house, he gives him a reason to call me and say, Hey, you know, son, just let you know, I deposit the check. And it gives us an excuse to talk. You know, it makes them feel useful. You know, so I think a lot of times, you know, whether it's you know asking a buddy to help you move or you know assemble IKEA furniture or you know whatever it is, people enjoy it. People enjoy when you reach out and and they feel they feel like worthy and, and useful. I mean, like people don't buy pickup trucks, you know, <laughs> to haul the shit once a year. They ha- they they buy it just in case you know a friend needs it. You know. <laughs> Yeah, what what you said is a lesson I learned last year. You know, my uh, fiance. You know, with my with my father in law or future father in law, she says something very interesting. She's always asking him for favors because when someone gets older, their their fear is becoming you know too dependent on others and not as useful. 
because mm. the, you know technology is happening and things are advancing so fast. So when you ask people for help, you ask people for favors, ask them for their advice, then they feel like they're still needed in your life. And mm. that's when you get you know that's what they that's what they want when they're when they're older. So that's something I I kind of realized. And man, the older I get, the more I realize, dude, everything in life is just psychology. <laughs> it's everything psychology. What, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is whenever there's a behavior we want to achieve or we want to stop, we have to take a step back and understand what's the root psychology of what's causing it. Mm. So let me give you an example uh, in entrepreneurship. So everyone knows um, you have to take action, right? You have to take action. And I remember a long time ago, I was reading this book on procrastination. I had a big uh, problem with procrastination in my early 20s. And, you know, I was just thinking to myself, the solution is uh, I have to use my Pomodoro timer. Um, I have to use a stopwatch or I have to block Facebook, but I still procrastinated. So I was reading this book and this book was, had zero techniques. It was all about psychology. And the one thing that really struck me was one of, one of the things they said was they gave an example of how some people would purposely not study for an exam. And it brought me back to um, you know, my days at Georgia Tech where it was a very difficult school because I was studying engineering for the first few years. Dude, there were some tests that I did not study for. And then I would get a C. And I remember my classmates asking me like, hey, what was your score? And I was like, oh, I got a C. I didn't really study for it though. So I read that book and there's this chapter that helped me understand my own psychology where I didn't have confidence that um, I wasn't, I wasn't confident that I was smart back then. So my fear was I didn't want to spend two, three weeks studying for this exam only to end up getting a C or a B. Because that, mm. to me, that would be confirmation that I'm not smart enough to get an A. Mm. So instead, I would purposely sabotage myself and not study or barely study. Mm. So I had that crutch. I had that excuse that, hey, I didn't study. That's why I got a C. I'd rather not study and get a C because then I would say like, oh, it's because I didn't study? Mm. Then purposely study my ass off and get a B because then that would tell me I'm not smart enough to get an A. So that's kind of like you know, what I meant where everything's psychology. When you're, when you're a dad... You mentioned, you know, uh, you want to help your dad out. Okay, what's the, psych- what's the psychology, psychological reason why? And, you know, psychology is something I'm just extremely interested in. And obviously that started because of mar- marketing and selling. Mm-hmm. But these days, I just I love psychology because it helps me understand so many different social situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and business too. I mean, I, I'm sure the reason why so many people never get started or they just spend all their time looking for reasons not to do something, you know, whether it's like looking for all the downsides of dropshipping or looking all the downsides of Amazon FBA or, or affiliate marketing or whatever it is, it's to give them that excuse on why they never had to start. And it's not really because they're so afraid that they're going to spend, you know, $2,000 you know, testing ads and it not working out or, you know, two months st- setting up a dropshipping store and, and not working out, their fear is that they're not going to be successful because maybe they're, they're not smart enough or they're not hardworking enough or whatever else is holding them back. They look for excuses on why they shouldn't even start or try something because they're afraid of failing. Yeah. And, and why is that? Because maybe it's with themselves 
or maybe they don't want their parents or their significant other to think less of them. So before they start, they already have an excuse on why they failed. And that's just complete BS. So that's why I alluded to earlier in this um, interview with, you know, there are some people out there that just keep making money and they just keep buying stuff. They're just trying to fill this hole mm -hmm. that money can't fill and they have to get their inner game, their mental health completely up to par. Like that's, that's what I, you know, believe in whenever someone's like in a, in a rut business wise, I'm like, dude, you gotta, you just gotta work. You gotta focus on the basics, good sleep, exercise, good diet, see a therapist, get your mental health straight, go see some nature. You got to get the foundations of the pyramid. You got to build the foundations of the house first before you can tackle the other stuff or else you're building a house on a shaky foundation. And that's why you see some entrepreneurs that just everything's going great, but then everything just collapses one day. Mm -hmm. Absolutely agree. So thank you for all the wise words from you know, 13 years, 12 years in the business. It's, it's been amazing. Uh, I got to go to bed. My girlfriend's waiting for me. It's already 1030 here in Sri Lanka, but dude, it, it's been really fun catching up, man. Yeah. So, uh, you know, thank you for your time. Thank you for this opportunity. And you know, whoever's listening to this, like a, like almost two hours in, you know, thank yeah. you for your, thank you for your attention. Um, and you know, whatever comments, feedback you get, send them my way. Johnny would love to read them. And you know, if you guys want to reach out to me, I'm on, I'm pretty active on Twitter and, and I'm pretty easy to find Charles. No doc, Dr. No on Twitter. How'd you, how'd you come up with that name by the way? Oh, easy. That was it. Real easy. Um, I was in a fraternity in, in Georgia tech and my nickname was Dr. No. And I didn't understand. I was like, well, how, how the heck am I Dr. No? That doesn't make any sense. They got it from the James Bond movie. The first James oh. Bond movie was Dr. No. So I'm Dr. NGO. Oh, and nice. I, decided to, uh, I decided to roll with it because you know doctors are very systematic, big thinkers. And I'm like, okay, well, I can be Dr. No. If, if Dr. Dre can be Dr. Dre without a degree, yeah. then I can be freaking Dr. No. <laughs> yeah. I like it. So I highly recommend follow Dr. No on Twitter, follow Johnny FDK, uh, sign up for uh, Charles's email list at charlesnoengo.com and then mine on johnnyfd.com if you haven't already. Uh, we'll have all this in the show notes. But if you like this episode, you think that there's a lot of value that your friends or family or someone that you know would benefit from it, share this episode. You know, Drop it as a link somewhere, take a screenshot, whatever you gotta do. And we'll see all of you guys, I don't know, in a week or two. Charles, any final words? Say, you want to say goodbye? Uh, yeah, one final question. Dude, you just brought up something. What does FD stand for? What is Johnny FD? <laughs> it was, uh, I've never known, dude. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like People have known me for years and never knew. In my, when I first wrote my first book, 12 Weeks in Thailand, The Good Life on the Cheap, I was trying to squeeze in more keywords on Amazon into the title. So, and I couldn't fit any more into the title, the subtitle. So I decided to make my author name Johnny Fighting Diving, Johnny Fighter Dive Master, so which scuba diving and Muay Thai. Oh my God. <laughs> and then the K. That, I would never have guessed that in a million years, dude. Yeah, nobody knows that. <laughs> and nobody actually knows what the K stands for. But Johnny, at Johnny FD was taken on Twitter. So I was like, fuck, I need another letter. And, I, and that, <laughs> that, that's when I first wrote the book. And I was like, okay, fighter, diver, Kindle publisher. <laughs> so it's Johnny FDK, John, fighting, diving, and Kindle. Oh, I thought it was going to be a kickboxer at the end. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. So there you have it, guys. If you listened two hours in, <laughs> 200 and uh, how many episodes in, you finally know the East, answer. You know, nobody asked end. me that. It's funny. Nobody ever asked me that either. <laughs> All right, dude. All right. Have a cool. good night. Um, yeah.
thank you everyone for your time. Yeah, let, let's uh, catch up soon. I, 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 I really mean it. Bye, guys. All right. Thank you for listening to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. If you want to hear more, including the bonus, how to choose the perfect niche episode, join our mailing list at travellikeabosspodcast.com. See you next week. And remember, if you want to travel like a boss, you need to be your own boss. So start your online business today and start living the lifestyle you've always dreamed of.